The reading is in two parts. The first part is 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 14b to 25, which is found on page 300 of the Church Bibles. That's page 300. In this passage, Samuel is brought to speak to Saul through a medium. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me, now that the Lord has departed from you and become my enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so that you may eat and have the strength to go in your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she slaughtered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night, they got up and left. The second part of the reading is 1 Samuel chapter 31. Which is, page, which is found on page 303. Samuel chapter 31. Saul takes his life. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. 
When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Thanks, Logan, very much. Um, I'm going to preach from here because um, um, there are some lovely lilies and irises over there, and at least earlier on a cloud of pollen. So I thought it was probably better that I should be able to breathe for the next 20 minutes. So I'm going to go from here. Uh, one other thing before we start as well. Um, for you guys, for the woolly leaders who are here this morning, uh, as a church, can we say a huge thank you to you guys for all that you do for our uh, rooted group here at BH? Um, uh, Anna and my wife and I were leading ventures for uh, many years, and we've always said that uh, in terms of leading the ventures, that we're serving a local church, and uh, you guys serve us hugely well, and we all owe you a great debt of gratitude. So we just want to say thank you now for all you've done over the years, for all we trust you we're doing this summer as well. Uh, you do a great job, and we want to say a very big thank you. So thank you very much. Uh, let's pray now as we come to God's word. Father, it's quite a difficult passage, really, 1 Samuel 31. And uh, it's very sad. It's a big tragedy. And there's a lot of stuff here which uh, um, is probably quite difficult, really. So we pray, Father, you'd, you'd help us to understand this well and rightly and uh, apply this well to our lives, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles there, it's page 303. We're going to be focusing on uh, verse uh, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And uh, many of us will know that the clicker isn't working. <laughs> oh, here we are. That's Mike Ovi. Many of us will uh, uh, recognize Mike, the principal of Oak Hill, Oak Hill College. I was going confused. Oak Hill College. That was until the 7th of January this year when Mike was at home that Saturday night and he suffered a massive heart attack from which he never recovered. He was 58 and he left his wife, Heather, and their three children, Charlie and Harry and Anna. Uh, James Pinto from here is at Oak Hill. Becky Forrest from here is at Oak Hill at the moment. Stephen Dimitro, Rory Graham trained at Oak Hill and so on. A tragedy for Mike's family, a tragedy for Oak Hill, the college, a tragedy for evangelicalism because uh, Mike undoubtedly uh, had a massive intellect and has been a theological leader uh, for many churches like BH, not just in the UK but around the church and around the world is what I meant to say. Now why does that happen? Why did the Lord allow that to happen? A huge blow simply a huge blow on so many different fronts. 
where wise Christians would seek to think through what might be happening, even in times, perhaps especially in times of tragedy. And uh, I don't think we've come to the point of uh, even beginning to be able to answer those questions with respect to the tragic loss of Mike. Perhaps we never will fully, definitely never will fully before heaven. But overall, this morning, as we study 1 Samuel 31, uh, and as we see another tragedy in this chapter unfolding, we want to uh, just say this uh, and ask that question. We want to see what's happening even in the tragedy. And we see, want to see what God is up to, even in the sad and the most difficult times. And what have I told you about Mike Covey this morning? Well, partly because Mike and I have done the same job. We've lived in the same house. Because Mike was curate in Crowborough, kind of two curates after, after I was. And uh, partly because Mike was the first to teach me about the wisdom of seeing trajectory. He was speaking at a conference about four or five years ago, and he was speaking about the trajectory. I can never say it, so it's going to come up lots of times, and I'll probably get stuck on it every single time. The trajectory of the Church of England, the rather alarming trajectory of the Church of England. And uh, the word trajectory may seem a little bit highbrow and technical, but it's not at all. We all do it, aren't we? You play tennis, you're working out the trajectory of the ball and where you need to be and the timing of the racket and so on in order to hit it back over the net. You're playing catch, you're teaching your little toddler to, uh, to catch, you're teaching them trajectory as they're going to try and work out where the hands are going to go in order to catch the ball. So where's this all going? Where's it going to end up? Well, we're going to see three main points this morning. First of all, we want to see what God's trajectory, even in times of sadness and loss and tragedy. Second, we want to see that we must honour God's name. And third, we want to look for God's king. So three simple points, and uh, this is the first one. See God's trajectory. Now, today we reach the end of 1 Samuel. Some of us may be breathing a sigh of relief. We've eventually got to chapter 31. Uh, it's the end of the book, the end of the series. We will have to do chapter, you know, 2 Samuel at some point, but maybe not just yet. But all the way through here, we've seen two different trajectories. We've seen on the one hand the trajectory of Saul, chosen, made king. A king rather like the nations around in many ways. And uh, a flawed king, a deeply flawed king. Possibly unstable mentally, certainly unstable emotionally, and a trajectory that he was following down and away from God and the throne of Israel. That's Saul and his trajectory. Then we also see David's trajectory, anointed to be God's king in place of Saul, and his is an upward trajectory from small and insignificant to the throne of Israel. Now, when we see David in the Bible, we're meant to think, look for Jesus, see the parallels, see what's happening here. And so we can see with, uh, with David here, we can see the small and insignificance of his beginning, and we see with Jesus the small and the insignificance of his beginning. And we see with David going to the throne of Israel and with Jesus going to the throne of heaven. 
So Saul's trajectory is inevitably downwards and David's trajectory is inevitably upwards. And we're being taught here throughout uh, 1 Samuel that there is a movement. There is a movement from no king to a human king, but a king rather like the nations around and going from that to God's king. And here at the end of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31, it's the end of Saul. It's the end of going from no king to a human king, a human king like the nations around. It's the end of that. And it's a tragedy for the country, it's a tragedy for Saul, and it's a tragedy for his family. He's been going downwards, down, down, down. And he's been told, the reason that Logan read from chapter 28 there was just look in verse 19 there of chapter 28 on page 301. And he says, the Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. In other words, tomorrow you and your sons will be dead. And he was told that just just the day before. And here on Mount Gilboa, he's in a battle with the Philistines. And it is a tragedy. In fact, the, uh, the verb the, uh, in the original the Hebrew verb, to die, is there four times in verses 5, 6, and 7. And then the idea of falling. So that, that's the immediate. Saul's going to die. People die here. Many people die here. But actually the big picture is this falling, this going downward, this falling away from God. So you look at verse 1. Many fell dead on Mount Gilboa in verse 1 there. Uh, Verse 4, the end of it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Verse 5, he too fell, his his armor bearer, he too fell on his sword and died with him. And verse 8, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. There is something here about Saul falling, falling down away from God. And this is all in a place where there is a terrible, terrible battle going on. Uh, you may remember Saving Private Ryan. I think it was about 20 years ago now. Was it 2006, I think? Um, and uh, uh, no, it's 10 years ago, isn't it? Or was it 96? Well, anyway, ignore what I've just said. Take it off the recording. Okay, it's about the D-Day, D-Day landings in Normandy, uh, Omaha Beach. Uh, apparently are so realistic that many veterans, when they went to see the film, actually they, uh, they couldn't bear to watch it because it was so realistic. Many of them had to walk out. And, uh, uh, and here, uh, you just get a feeling this is an extraordinary and a terrible battle going on in chapter 31. It says here, now the Philistines fought against Israel. That's uh, ongoing, okay? That is what they were doing. But here is a real focus of their battle. They're fighting against Israel, against God's people. And you have a similar scene. The whole thing is a terrible tragedy. And uh, the first reported casualty on Mount Gilboa is Jonathan, David's best mate. Jonathan had surrendered his kingdom for David back in chapter 18. He is Saul's oldest son. So when Saul dies, Jonathan ought to be becoming king. But Jonathan has given this over to David. A remarkable man, remarkably faithful to God's calling on his life. A calling which actually cost him his life. And he laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose. 
And now here he is, dying alongside uh, his two brothers, Abinadab and Melchizedek, in this battle. And then the Philistine archers get in range, and their dad's hit as well. Saul is critically wounded. And he wants his armor bearer to run him through, to finish him off. But his armor bearer won't. Saul is God's anointed king. You don't kill the king. You don't kill God's anointed. And so Saul, in verse 4, commits suicide. He finishes himself off. Saul had effectively removed himself from the throne uh, and through his own disobedience. And now he confirms it with his own suicide as he falls on his own sword. This is a shattering defeat for Israel. No king. No sons of the king. This is a culmination of a a terrible downward trajectory for King Saul. And for the country, no king. No human king like the nations around. No king is gone. But God will give the nation his choice of king. So you can see in 1 Samuel 31, you can see God's trajectory. You can see God's trajectory. God removing Saul from the throne, using the Philistine armies to do it. And Saul um, is not the king, actually, that his country needs. He's not actually the king that his country that they're looking for. He's not the king who's going to bring about the promises to God's people of living in this promised land, of being safe from your enemies, of being blessed by God. King Saul was never able to bring all that about. It's a tragic day. But in the big scheme of things, Saul needs to be removed before another king, a better king, takes his place. Now, how do we apply this? Well, they're searching for God's king, his chosen king. Saul is not the man. He's actually not in the right mould. It does remind us, though, that uh, uh, we now know who God's chosen king actually is. In fact, more than that, if you're a Christian, not only do you know who he is, but you know him personally. And a woolly over the summer. And day by day and week by week here, we're desperate to introduce people to our king. To our king, it's Jesus. And we thank and praise God that in Jesus, we have a king to follow for all eternity. A king to follow who solved our greatest problem, our separation from our heavenly father. And you look at all the kings in the Old Testament and you see what they're supposed to do. The perfect king is the king who will be followed for all eternity. The perfect king is the king who can solve that problem, this separation of mankind from God. And none of the kings in the Old Testament quite do that. Saul, you've got a king in the, in the world, the, nation, the mold of the nations around, and he doesn't do that. David, he's a great step forward. And one who uh, we clearly look to as the, uh, uh, the best king in the Old Testament. But he's still pointing forward to the one, the perfect king. Our King Jesus. 
who will solve the problem of our separation from God and who has solved that problem of our separation from God. So see here God's trajectory. See what's going on. Ask the question, look, what is happening here? What is going on here? And so in our application of this, you think, well, see the trajectory. See what's going on. See what God is doing. Ask what's going on here. So just to take an example, say the Church of England. Where is the Church of England going? What is the Church of England going to be like in five to ten years' time? What is God doing here? When just this last week, the Scottish Episcopal Church, the equivalent of the C of E in Scotland, have taken a significant step forward to having uh, uh, same-sex marriages in, in churches in Scotland. And around the world, many evangelicals, for instance, are saying that this is a line in the sand that they are not prepared to cross. So what is the trajectory of the Church of England? Where are we going? Certainly there's a pressure on us to go in the same direction. And many are deeply concerned. Now, when you see the trajectory, the important thing is to turn it into prayer and into action. It's no point in just saying, oh, it's going in that way. Isn't that terrible? And then you just ignore it. We need to be praying people about these matters, don't we? Others would also uh, look not just at the state of our church, but also the state of our country and be deeply concerned about the way that things to be progressing in our country. And then other people would say, well, Manchester on Monday night. Is there a a trajectory there that we can discern? And if there is, that must drive us to our knees. It must do. So the trajectory is an important thing. Discern it. See God's trajectory. See God's trajectory in our country and in our church and in history and then react to it. I think for many of us that will mean we're getting on our knees. We're going to be praying for our church. We're going to be praying for our country. We're going to be praying for our world. Second, that's looking at the very big picture. The second thing here, which is just a much more local thing, but still very significant, is this. Honour God's name. Now, we just looked at the big picture, uh, and now we're going to focus down. And this is where it gets really gory. So, verses 8 to 10. Now, it's not clear from the original exactly what happened in verse 9. It could be from verse 9 in the original that they actually paraded Saul's head around. Not just the news, but they took his head around to show people that uh, uh, he was dead. Pretty horrible, whatever happened. Uh, In the original, though, it is clear that Saul's body was fastened, probably nailed, to the wall of the city of Bethshan. And this just wasn't... It's important here to realise that this is not just mocking Saul and his sons and the kind of Saul's dynasty. No one to succeed him now. Actually, this is not just mocking Saul. This is mocking God. Because God was uh, the one who appointed Saul to be king over Israel. God is the one who's being mocked and ridiculed here. God couldn't protect his anointed one. Not much of a God then, is he? And then the people of God of uh, Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead's only about 10, 12 miles down the road, so not terribly far. Uh, they get to hear of... Uh, what must be now a decomposing body nailed to the wall and kind of dribbling off gradually. 
And then at night, they marched over there and they took down the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua. And they took them back to Jabesh and they created them and they buried their bones, verse 13. They gave them a proper funeral. That's what they did. God was being mocked by this public display of these rotting corpses of the king and his heirs. And that mattered to the people of Jabesh Gilead, partly because Saul had rescued them at the start of his reign in 1 Samuel chapter 11. But the overriding thing here is, it matters when our God is being dishonored. The honor of God must be top of our agenda. So, for instance, just locally here, when criminal acts of clergy in Sussex now mean that thousands of people around here think of the church and they think of the clergy and they think, well, they're all at it, aren't they? That is a disgrace to the name of the Lord. That is something for us to be ashamed of and to repent of. And the reputation of the church is just brought down by some kind of ungodly behavior. Actually, the reputation of the church can be um, brought down by all sorts of little things, can't it, as well? Not just the huge things, but all sorts of little things. If you parked badly this morning, if you parked across someone's drive, or just a bit across someone's drive, then that will bring down the reputation of this church in the eyes of the person whose driveway that is, for instance. Park well for the glory of God, for the reputation of his church. Um, and our behavior can dishonor God's name by those who know him not. So let's be thinking of our behavior. Let's be concerned for God's name, his reputation, the reputation of his church here in our locality, amongst our neighbors, amongst our unbelieving friends and so on. We need to honor God's name. We need to pray that God's name would be honored in our country, in our area here. And we need to do all that we can, personally, locally, that God's name may be honored here. Let's do that. Think about your actions. Would God's name be dishonored by what I've done or what I'm about to do? And then change. That God's name may be held high. That's the second. Honour God's name. And then just briefly, the third part here. Looking for God's king. So let's remember again what's going on in 1 Samuel. Um, it's, 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 something's moving, isn't it? So they're going from no king to a king that's like the nations to God's king. So you see the movement there. And uh, we see uh, God's king in 2 Samuel. That's when David becomes the king. Um, but he's not perfect. He keeps on slipping back, doesn't he? Uh, if you've read anything from the Old Testament, you'll have no stories about David and Bathsheba and so on. Uh, so he keeps on slipping back. And they're looking for a king, God's king, in 1 Samuel. King Saul looked like God's king, the Christ. But very quickly we saw that he wasn't. Perhaps he wasn't very well. He certainly disobeyed God, and he resisted God's purposes. And then we've seen in 1 Samuel that David being chosen and anointed as God's king, the best king that Israel would ever have. And that even David's not the perfect king. Failings, failures, couldn't bring his people to a perfect and eternal walk with God. He couldn't sort out his own uh, or even his people's sin. Couldn't do that. 
but it does point us forward to King Jesus, to one of his physical descendants, one born in his line, who would be the perfect king, who would lead his people, the one they could follow, we can follow confidently, the one who could and has opened the door to a sin-forgiven eternity, the one born to a peasant couple in some remote corner of the Roman Empire, a baby who is now king over all and for all eternity. David just simply points us to the most exalted, the most wise, the most humble, the most loving, the most generous, the most powerful, the most peace-loving, the most effective king the universe has or will ever see, and his name is Jesus. So think much of Jesus. Love Jesus much. Speak of Jesus much. And whenever you see a king in the Old Testament, be that Saul, whose tragic end we see this morning, or be that David, or say any of the kings and one or two kings, look for God's king. Look for how the king you see in the Old Testament actually points you in some way to Jesus. Either saying, well, that king just did evil in the eyes of the Lord, hopelessly, all the time, Thank God for Jesus that he's a great king, a wonderful and perfect king. Or maybe you read of a king who's generally quite good, like King David. If so, we thank God that he points us clearly to one who's not just quite good, but is wonderfully and perfectly good for all eternity. So this morning, as we come to the end of 1 Samuel, see God's trajectory Honour God's name and look for God's king and see what's happening, even in a tragedy like 1 Samuel 31.